And welcome back to part two of Come and See Inspirations today, which is the 27th of March. My name is Shane Ambrose. I'm delighted to welcome you back to this part of the program. So um, part two this week, we are going to do something a little different. Um, and what we're going to do is we're going to have, a, I'm going to go through a kind of a piece of giving the religious background to the conflict in the Ukraine. It's an area which isn't getting much coverage in this part of the world unless you are following specific, you know, religiously orientated websites and news outlets. But it is a component which forms a, a, a kind of an important part in terms of the Russian justification for what they're trying to do. And to try and bring about peace, one must also must always strive to understand where the other person is coming so that you can see where compromises and agreement can be reached to bring peace to the situation because ultimately all wars have to end in some peace agreement. Now, as with anything online to do with the Ukraine and the Ukraine war at this moment in time, we have to put in the timestamp caveat. So today is, we are recording this on Wednesday, the 23rd of March. It will go out broadcast on our podcast page on the 27th of March. Obviously, of course, things, given the situation in Ukraine, things can change quite quick, quite abruptly. Um, but just for, you know, facts and things can change after events. But that's where we're working from at this moment in time, a timestamp. Right, John. So in terms of what we're talking about, I suppose what caught my eye and what, why I suggested to John that we would cover this particular topic is a headline that was on the religious news service and said, Putin is after more than land. He wants the religious soul of Ukraine. And I thought it was an interesting headline, caught my eye. And when you start reading into it, you know, there's a certain underlying rationale to that headline and what people are trying to say and what it is that perhaps some elements in Russia are trying to do. So if we go back to the start and we're talking about Ukraine from a Christian point of view, what are we talking about? Ukraine, of course, is the second largest country in Europe, population of 44 million people. And it's very much defined by its location. Even the name Ukraine in some definitions is, is a word meaning borderland between East and West. Uh, from a historical point of view, from a Christian history point of view, um, it was the seat of the Kievan Rus. That was the duchy, that was the principality that was there. And the history, it forms a very key part in the history of that part of the world. The history of Kievan Rus uh, influences the history of the Ukraine, Belarusia, and Russia itself. Uh, in 988, its ruler, Prince Vladimir of Volodymyr, as, as, as the Ukrainians would call him, he accepted and became a Christian. And it's an important date, 988, because that's seen as kind of very much the date of his conversion to Eastern Orthodoxy. You know, it was defined as, it's, it's seen as being very um, key in history in that part of the world. Um, he's the, the prince Vladimir's his emissaries, emissaries even, had travelled to Constantinople to learn about the faith, and famously are said to have reported to him when they got back that when they witnessed the Byzantine liturgy being celebrated in the Hagia Sophia, 
cathedral in Constantinople, that it was so beautiful that we no longer knew whether we were in heaven or on earth. And the year of Vladimir's baptism in 988 is commonly cited as the year when Christianity was established in the lands that are now the Ukraine and Russia. So when we look at the Ukraine today and we talk about the different denominations that are there, I suppose from our point of view, we would break it into two groups. So there are Catholic Christians and then there are the Orthodox Christians. So if we go with the Catholic Christians first, there are three different uh, groupings of Catholic Christians. Now, I suppose one thing which we have raised on the, on the podcast before is that when we're talking about um, the Catholic Church, in an Irish context or a UK context or an American context, we often call ourselves Roman Catholics, but that is only one part of the Catholic Church. There are actually 24 different churches which make up the Catholic Church. And the unifying factor is the communion with the successor of St. Peter. For the majority of Irish people and, and, and Roman Catholics, we are technically what's called Latin Rite Catholics. We are Latin Catholics. That's how we're defined. Our liturgies, our rites, our way of celebrating our faith, our way of understanding and governing our ecclesial communities and our church is defined by tradition coming from the Sea of Rome. So hence the term Latin. But you have 23 other churches of equal right, of equal importance within the Catholic Church who celebrate their rites and liturgies and their governments in a different structure. And some of those are Byzantine, some of them which is coming from Constantinople, some of them are Syriac, coming from Syriac, Syriac part of the world. Uh, some are coming from the Alexandrian tradition, which is associated with Alexandria in Egypt. All of them have different ways that they celebrate their liturgies, that they're governed in different ways, that they communicate with their diaspora around the world in different ways. But for those that call themselves Catholic, they are in communion with the See of St. Peter. Uh, so that's, that's what they are. And in the case for the Ukraine, there are actually two of these churches. One is called the, uh, the, the, Greek, uh, the Greek, Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. And the other one is called the Ruthenian Greek Catholic Church. Now, Greek in this sense has nothing to do with being from Greece. It actually just refers to the liturgies they use, the Byzantine liturgies. The Byzantine is also the term that sometimes uses Greek liturgies. So that's, that's what that means. So in, from a Ukrainian point of view, there are three Catholic churches. There are the dioceses that we would call Latin Rite, and they're mainly people that would have been of Polish extraction, okay? You have the Rutanian church, which is to the south of Ukraine, and that's its own distinct community, very much associated with uh, Hungary, because at that part, and over the years, Hungary, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, ruled that part of Ukraine. Um, if I was to associate it with people, I would say to you, if you artist Andy Warhol, famous American artist. Um, now he's, he's seen in some, in, in broader society, he's regarded as iconic, uh, a gay icon in some parts of the world. But from an artistic point of view, you take famous paintings of the cans of Campbell's soup or the famous pictures of uh, Marilyn Monroe in four different squares on a turn. He's from Pittsburgh. And 
very interesting life. I, I visited the museum, dedicated him, and the gallery dedicated him there. But he was, he is, so he's Rutanian. He was Rutanian Catholic to the day he died. Uh, and very a very devout one, actually, as well. But the, the church I want to, and the other church I want to focus on, or I am going to focus on, is the UK, Ukrainian Catholic Church, which is an interesting church in itself. It's the largest Greek Catholic church in the world. It's a church of martyrs. It's a church of the catacombs in the Ukraine. And it has a large, a large influence in Ukraine society because it was seen as being very much a church associated with preserving and maintaining Ukrainian culture and tradition and language. And a lot, and it has had an, uh, members of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church have been very much involved in Ukrainian identity, a bit like ourselves from, in Ireland when we had our own Gaelic revival in the 1890s and 1900s, uh, that kind of thing as, as well. So that's, then on the other side, you have Orthodox churches, and there are two principal Orthodox churches in Ukraine. So I'll come to those in a minute because those are the important ones from a Russian point of view. But just in terms of the Greek Catholics, uh, the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, uh, it's a population of about 3.25 million, predominantly in Western Ukraine. Um, and very much, I suppose, its history is bound up with, 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 with the Orthodox Church. So when we had the Great Schism in 1054, so that's when there was the divide between the Latin Church of the West and the Orthodox Church of the East. Um, the church in, in Ukraine, they went with the East. You know, that makes sense. They were, they were an Orthodox community. But in 1596, um, Western Ukraine was ruled by Poland. And at that time, a number of the bishops in that part of the world uh, entered into union with Rome again. So they, they, they came back into communion with the Pope. And that's an important day. So they maintained their own liturgy as Greek or Byzantine, but they were in communion with the See of St. Peter. And so since then, we've had the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. And it's an important from a Ukrainian point of view. Uh, the Russian Church really does not like it because it's seen as impinging on their canonical territory. Again. Um, in the early 20th century, uh, they, the church very much, as I said, was a source of unity and the national cause for the Ukraine. Um, and then it's gone under huge uh, persecution. So when it was set up in 1596, it was in what was lands that were controlled by the Poles. Then it was divided up between Imperial Russia and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Then after the First World War, it was taken over by the Soviets. Then the Germans invaded. Then the Soviets took it back. Then it was part of the USSR. So, you know, Ukraine has had a very mixed history in terms of people that have been in power, to say the least. But, you know, and they have suffered as, as people have suffered. You know, like one of the things that we don't often hear about um, in the West is the suffering of Ukrainian people under Joseph Stalin in particular in the mid-1930s. Up to five to six million Ukrainians starved to death uh, during what is called the Holdemar, which is, in an Irish context, the easiest, the easiest analogy or comparison I can make for Irish people is, is the Ukrainian equivalent of the Great Famine. So it was, at the time, the Soviets were trying to introduce collectivization onto the huge farms of the Ukraine, which was obviously being opposed by many of the farmers there. 
And Stalin basically came down like a ton of bricks and destroyed the communities and starved them in submission. So that was that was that was in the mid thirties that happened. And then, of course, then you had the war between 1939 and 1945, uh, where you had the Soviets in, invaded, then the Germans invaded, and the Soviets kicked the Germans out of the Ukraine and wreaked havoc. It distorted the entire population. It kicked out people of Polish extraction. It decimated the community. But from the point of view of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, what happened in 1946 is that the Soviets orchestrated the elimination of the church. There was a synod, a so-called synod of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, which took place and which voted, in inverted commas, to rejoin the Russian Orthodox Church. So voted itself out of existence. And so that was when the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church took to the catacombs. So you had people that just went along with us because they wanted to be able to celebrate their liturgies, obviously under Soviet oppression, and you had people that were underground. And it was, you know, it continued to function very much in its diaspora, in the exile for many years, under the leadership of a very famous man called Yosef Slipyev. He was released from prison by the Soviets in 1963, and he was exiled to Rome. So there's a, there's a, there's a particular connection between the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church and the city of Rome. And if you're ever actually in Rome, there is a basilica or a church dedicated to down near the catacombs, down near the, not the catacombs, the Colosseum. It's just off the Colosseum. So it's very near to the Irish College for anyone that's, that's visiting Rome. And there's, there's a, there, if you were looking for reasonably cheap accommodation, actually, in Rome, there's a religious sisters that run a convent that does B&B in that part of the world. But they're Ukrainian sisters. Uh, but there was a great connection between uh, the Ukrainian Catholic Church, Greek Catholic Church, and Rome because their leadership was in exile in Rome. Obviously, the church continued underground in the Ukraine, uh, particularly the babushkas. The, the mothers and the grandmothers maintained the faith for the Greek, for the Ukrainian Greek Catholics. Um, very much focus on what was then the domestic church. It was described as. People took the church back into their homes, back into their families, and took responsibility for it. Because otherwise, the clergies were sent off to the gulags, they were exiled to Siberia. Um, and the other interesting was they listened to the liturgies on Vatican radio, which I thought was an interesting point, John, because there was a report the other day of how they were saying the BBC World Service has resurrected its shortwave service. Uh, in a world where we're so used to the internet, sometimes we have to remind ourselves the internet doesn't work in every part of the world and you must take up older forms of technology. And Vatican Radio has never turned off its shortwave service around the world, which I thought, which I thought was quite interesting. So the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, it had this huge renewal in 1989 and 1990 after the fall of communism. And... It wasn't an easy process coming back out of the catacombs because obviously they were taking back their churches, which, you know, Russian Orthodox communities had been using. So there was a lot of difficulty there, but it has come back into place and it has a very important part uh, in, in the life of Ukraine to the present time. And I would say to people, if you want to have a look at, look at it, you should look at the Vatican website or Google YouTube a man called Major Archbishop Shovchek. He is the leader of the Greek, Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. And for the first two, two and a half weeks of the conflict of war in Ukraine, he was giving daily video reports, reflections 
from Kiev, Kiev, um, online. Now there are there are translations. It, it is translated. There is captions on screen for people. To, you know, those reflections themselves would give you lexio for Lent, is what I would say to people if you were to look them up. Um, obviously, you know, it's a, it's not perfect. There's nothing perfect about any particular church. But it's a church of the catacombs, and it's a very important church in terms of our relationships with the Eastern Orthodox. Uh, and that's something I'll come back to. In. Then on the other side, John, we're looking at the, or the Russian Orthodox Church and its role in the conflict in Ukraine. And unfortunately, uh, the current patriarch of uh, Moscow and all Rus, to give him his full title, is Patriarch Kirill. And unfortunately, I read a very good description of him the other day. The, the, the accusation that's always been made about some of the Orthodox churches is they can be very nationalistic. They're often defined by the borders of countries. And they're sometimes, coming from their history in the Byzantine Empire, there's sometimes very much a close relationship between the alternate, between church and state. Not like how we'd understand it as separate entities, Sometimes they're very interlinked in Orthodox countries and in Orthodox history. And uh, there was very much a, a description today of Patriarch Kirill. Instead of challenging um, President Putin, I saw, someone, one, I saw one person describe him as Putin's altar boy or the parish priest to the new czar of the Russias. And it's a very, very damning indictment of the man. But unfortunately, there's an element of truth to it because... One of the problems with the conflict and the war in the Ukraine is the Patriarch Kirill has not condemned it. In fact, he has given his blessing to what has happened, including giving a religious icon of the Madonna to the Minister of Defense in support of Russian troops. He hasn't condemned this. He hasn't condemned the atrocities. In fact, he has defended it. And he's defended it on the basis, on this basis that himself and Putin have put forward that the Ukraine is the birthplace of Christianity in that part of the world, which is to be defined as Russian. And therefore you have this whole concept of what is called Ruski Mir, which is this political, religious, nationalistic ideology where basically anything to the East should adhere to what comes from Moscow. There's no recognition for the independence of the Ukraine or Belarusia. There's no recognition for plurality in faith and churches. And it's very much seen as kind of defining the Russian world covering what was basically the Soviet Union and the sphere of influence of the Soviet Union. And it's kind of defined as Russia must regain the territory of the empire and monopoly power over souls must belong to the Russian Orthodox Church. Right. But it's, 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 it's a sad one in one sense, because obviously as a man of the cloth, as, you know, he's, he's a bishop, he's a priest, priest, priest of Christ, you would hope and think that a man like him would be advocating for peace and trying to, you know, restrain the worst excesses of it. Unfortunately, that's not quite the case. And there's been a number of homilies, a number of speeches he has given where he has pretty much come out and defended what President Putin is doing. Now, it's interesting, in Ukraine itself, the Orthodox community is divided. You have the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, which is an independent church. It was granted its independence in 2019 
by the declaration of Comus, our independence from the Patriarch of Constantinople. And that is the main Orthodox church that is in. But you also have a Ukrainian church, an Orthodox church in Ukraine, which is still loyal to the Russian Patriarch. So it's still loyal to Kirill. But that loyalty is now being tested. And it's interesting, one of their bishops, Metropolitan Oniov, he came out and he's the head of that particular church in Ukraine. And he came out the other day and he said, the Ukrainian and Russian peoples came out of the Dnieper baptismal font. That's the baptismal font of Prince Vladimir in 988. And the war between these people is a repetition of the sin of Cain, who killed his own brother out of envy. Such a war has no justification either with God or with men. That's an important statement because this is the man that is Patriarch Kirill's representative in Ukraine. And he's come out and he's basically said to his boss, this isn't on, this isn't good enough, and you should be defending all of us who remember you in the divine liturgy. So it's just, it's an important thing to understand, I suppose, for people just to be aware of that there is a religious overtone to what is happening. Um, obviously, for many people, the response from the Holy See has been a bit hard to understand as well in all of this. It took a while for the Vatican to come out and to explicitly condemn the war, to even use the term war. But that, I suppose, in defense of the Holy See and in defense of Pope Francis, the position of the Holy See has always to be that of a mediator. And that's the role that they're trying to offer. They're trying to remain there as a source of mediation, as an advocacy for peace. The Pope has condemned, the, has, con has strongly condemned what's going on and has called it a madness. Uh, you know, so it's just you know, some people had wondered why why there was a degree of silence to a certain extent, but they're trying to work things in the background as the Holy See it does. That's that's what it does. It does. It tries to mediate. It tries to have a base of mediation and offering itself as uh, a, a conciliator in conflict situations. It's an important one, I suppose, as well because. This war, I suppose, is very much going to challenge our understanding of the Orthodox community. Up to now, very much, the Russian Orthodox Church has been the big bear in the room, John. It's very much been kind of flexing its muscle. It has been a church of the largest, it's the largest Orthodox church in the world. Uh, it's the largest Orthodox community. It also happens to be the wealthiest Orthodox community. And it was trying to kind of push that influence around. So the question will now arise after the actions or lack of actions of patriarch where and how the standing of the Russian Orthodox Church will stand in the world, the visions that are now there in the Orthodox community. But as we kind of think about it and we pray for it and realize sometimes how religion can be wrapped around like a banner around forces, you know, we have to remind ourselves that whether we're Catholic or Orthodox or whatever denomination we are, we are all baptized, baptized followers of the Prince of Peace. And ultimately, that is what we should all be striving for in terms of peace. Um, there has been a debate whether, you know, the Ukrainians defending themselves meets the conditions for what's called a just war. I think in most cases, everyone would agree that the right to defend yourself and particularly under the UN Charter meets the conditions of a just war. But of, of obviously, we all pray for peace. The implications of a war on Europe again 
after so many years of since the the last uh, fratricide between Europeans in Bosnia in the 1990s, we thought we hadn't seen this like again. And it challenges us on so many levels. It's going to challenge Christianity in the Ukraine, a country of many mosaic parts, uh, as we as we're learning, as we're learning more and more. And from a Christianity Christian point of view, you know, it has many parts to it as well. Um, we pray, of course, for all concerned, in particular as Catholics. We pray for our fellow Catholics in the Ukrainian Greek Orthodox Church, the Ruthenian Church. Uh, but also we pray for all Ukrainians who are suffering at this time, John, I think is the fair, fair way to say. It's a challenging time. At the same time, it should also be said, I suppose, in defense of the Orthodox Church, many priests, many bishops in Ukraine, many theologians in the world have come out and condemned this Ruski Mir ideology, which Patriarch Kirill has embraced. So it's an important thing to remember that when we're talking about this conflict, we're talking about the leadership of Russia. We're not talking about Russian people in general. And that is something that we should remember. Yeah, that's a fair point. Thanks for that, Shane. Shane, just before we finish off this, a um, few questions. Yeah. The Byzantine liturgy, when was that introduced? Was that introduced before the break with the Orthodox? And was that always there, or what's the story? So Byzantine liturgy is the term that's used to describe the liturgies of the Eastern Orthodox Church. So it would have existed before um, the, break, the break in 1054. So Byzantine liturgies, you have Antioch, you have, you have the, the Divine Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom is the most famous one. Um, you have the Melkites, you so many, like I said, there's 23 different varieties of the family. Um, but Byzantine is just, it's, a, it's, a, it's an overarching term that's used for all of those different liturgies. But they would have been there before 1054, John. But yeah. as, yeah. Last one. You mentioned um, someone from um, a bishop, I think, Archbishop from Kiev, who was given daily reflections. And I think they were, um, he was given those through Vatican Radio. At some stage, you might be able to give us his name again. So it's yeah. So he's oh, major. Yeah, he's major Archbishop Shovchuk. Now I'm not going to spell it, John. What I would say to people is, if you go on to Vatican News, you will see it because they were putting up the YouTube clips and they were providing the translation. So Vatican News is your best place to find it. Um, he's an interesting guy. He's very. He was one of the youngest uh, bishops appointed to head his church. Um, the Greek, the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church has been asking Rome for many, many years to make him a patriarch, um, which would be the traditional title associated with church like that. Um, so we'll wait and see. At the moment, they're called Major Archbishop. That was invented for them in the 1960s by Pope Paul VI. Um, and they're, you know, it's, 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 it's an important thing for them as a faith community that they're, they're recognized and their independence is given to them. They're an interesting community. Um, they they straddle they 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 straddle that that place that space between east and west. And one of the things uh, which Pope John Paul II often prayed for was that the church needed to breed with both its lungs. And when Pope John Paul II was talking about things like that, he was talking about east and west, or the Latin Church and the Orthodox Church working and praying together. So, you know, the Unionite, the, the Greek Orthodox, the, the Ukraine Greek Orthodox Church is a very important bridge from that point of view. Okay, Shane, thanks a lot for that.
So at this point in the programme, we had hoped to have uh, the Seamus Enright, the rector of the Mount St. Francis Redemptist Monastery in Limerick, join us. But unfortunately, Father Seamus, um, just at the last minute, uh, took to the bed with, with a heavy cold and um, unfortunately couldn't join us. But Father Seamus um, did tell me that the Redemptists are indeed working in a variety of roles in a of cities and, and, and towns in various parts of Ukraine. They're close to the Polish border, they're in North Ukraine, close to the Russian and Belarusian border. Um, they are also involved close to the Moldovan border. Various supports have been offered. I know, for, uh, I just heard recently that they actually um, bought a generator for a hospital that was in need of it, uh, and that cost 50,000 euros just to give some idea. So Father Seamus produced a YouTube recently. It's only about a minute. And we thought it would be good uh, to share that with our listeners today. And maybe if they can can offer some support, I'm sure Father Seamus and the Redemptive community would be appreciative of the same. So we can now listen to Father Seamus making this appeal on YouTube. I'm Seamus Enright. I'm speaking to you from the Redemptorist Church in Limerick. I'm standing beside an image of Blessed Nicholas Chernetsky. Nicholas Chernetsky was a Ukrainian Redemptorist bishop. He celebrated Mass in this church in 1932 and afterwards spent many, many years in the concentration camps in the Gulag in Siberia. The picture reminds us of the suffering of the Ukrainian people. We've launched an appeal for Ukraine to help the Ukrainian Redemptorists, to help the victims of war, the refugees, the displaced people. If you'd like to support us, please go to our website, novena.ie, and you'll find our donate button there. Every cent you donate, every cent will go to the Redemptorists in Ukraine to help them to help the victims of this awful war. Thank you. So that was Father Father Seamus. Thanks again, uh, Father Father Seamus, for for allowing us to just to play that on YouTube. And and uh, we will, of course, invite Father Seamus back again at some other time to chat with us a bit more about the work the Redemptists are coordinating and helping uh, for their colleagues there in Ukraine. But in the meantime, we'll go out with um, a second piece of music. And again, this is a music uh, sharing a Ukrainian hymn that we actually played two weeks ago. Um, it's entitled The Sorrowful Mother. Yeah, it's a very traditional, I understand now, you know, it's, the way we're talking, it's where myself and John are experts in the Ukraine, but like everybody else, we're learning as we go. Uh, my understanding is this is a very traditional Lenten piece uh, sung during Lent in the Ukraine. And I suppose the closest analogy I could give to people uh, in Ireland or elsewhere is it's almost like a Ukrainian version of the Stabat Mater. Now, it's a very poor analogy, a very poor comparison, but it gives you an idea of the beauty of the, the hymn itself. If you can find it online, and there's quite a number of videos of it online, and they generally all have transcriptions of the, of the, of the words, and it's, it's a beautiful piece for reflection. So join us again in part three of our podcast, where we read and reflect on the Sunday Gospel. <laughs> 